Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. I tell people the way I find these buildings is often the MLS. They languish there because the numbers look awful. But when you go there, you dig into them. And if you know the market, you realize, oh, the numbers are awful because they're half of market. And someone didn't realize that. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of fluffy stuff with us today. Dave Holman. How you doing, Dave? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And it's my pleasure. A little bit about Dave. He's a commercial real estate broker. He's a syndicator and owner of a property management company, Triple Threat. He's got nine years of real estate experience. His portfolio consists of 94 units across 14 buildings, valued at approximately $11 million, based in Brunswick, Maine. With that being said, Dave, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. I used to describe what I do as a three-legged stool, but I like your term triple threat better. I'm going to, I'm going to take that and run with it. Yeah. Cause three-legged stools um, tend to fall over. Yeah. That's not exciting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stool's not going to move anything around for you. It's just something your butt goes on. So I'm excited that uh, I have a better tagline. This has been very helpful. So I grew up in Maine. Should we stop uh, the that I love. <laughs> and just went to public school, grew up kind of middle-class, didn't know anything about real estate. And in college, I took a class called Building the Eco House with an architect who was our director of facilities out in Minnesota at Carleton College. And that really turned me on to the built world and architecture, engineering, energy efficiency, things like that. Got to do some hands-on work, TA'd that class for the next two years and thought about even becoming an architect. But life led me down to Bolivia where I was studying and I met my then girlfriend, now wife, and we have two kids. So I spent four years down there started a chain of retail stores, selling camping gear, things like that. And that kind of got my business and entrepreneurial juices flowing. And I always thought, man, we're renting all these retail storefronts and it's just like burning money up every month. I wish I owned them. And then the monthly payment, half of that or two thirds of that would really be pennies in the piggy bank savings. So that got me thinking. I came back to the US in 09. I got my MBA and went to work in nonprofits related to helping poverty in Latin America. So I worked for a nonprofit called Safe Passage, which helps kids in the Guatemala to go to school. 
was their director of marketing and communications in English and Spanish for three and a half years and got into fundraising in that job. And that took me to Bowdoin College, where I spent five years in fundraising, learning to work with major donors, got to meet really cool people. Um, and it was a great experience, but I started real estate investing on the side. Once our first daughter was coming along, I was like, hmm, nonprofit work is not profitable. It lets me pay the bills, but I need to up my game a little bit. And having been a stock investor, I knew that wasn't going to move the needle in a reliable way for me. So just dove into real estate and I found your show pretty early on. So I've been a longtime listener and thank you for all the great free guidance and wisdom you've been sharing with people and that to your guests as well. So did a lot of reading and podcasting and then just started out. I had no capital of my own. So I partnered with friends and family that did and did all the work essentially to help them and me split a really good return. Started with single families, went into three unit mixed use, which kind of opened my eyes to commercial. And since then I've been partnering with people to buy bigger and bigger properties, multifamily apartments, and now a lot more mixed use commercial restaurant retail. So the 94 units is a little deceptive. Some of those units are like a 9,000 square foot floor of a building that a law office rents for 12 grand a month. So it's not all created equal, but it's been really entertaining and I love what I do. A lot to unpack. You're the first person I believe I've met who's lived in Bolivia and Maine and Minnesota. What brought <laughs> you to Minnesota one. for college if you're from Maine? I was excited to get out of a small state and see the broad world. My parents encouraged me to spread my wings and I was choosing between Carleton and Middlebury, and I loved the people out in the Midwest. They were just very genuine and authentic. There was none of this elitism and preppiness that we on the East Coast are all too familiar with. So I just fell in love with the people there and ended up now partnering with my best friend from Carleton, who's a syndicator in Minneapolis. So we're excited to do deals together. So it was a neat process to get out to a different part of the country and encourage everyone to travel a little bit if you haven't been far away from your home state. It's a very eye-opening experience. Tell us how you transfer your skills and what transfers over from raising money for nonprofits to raising money to put deals together. Yeah, it's a great question. I joked with people that I'm in development and I'm also in development because nonprofit development and fundraising, frankly, Joe, it's the exact same thing. It's relationship building. Part of my job was being a relationship manager. I got to escort Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, around his 35th reunion. Just really cool stuff like that, that allow you to help people give back to causes they believe in and that are meaningful to them, just like I'm now helping people invest for their future. And also to transform buildings and communities in a positive way. It's one thing if you just shotgun your money into the S&P 500, you're not making the world a better place. Whereas when you invest in a deal that is value add, and it's going to make a building better for the tenants that live there and the neighborhood better, and it's going to put their money to work, earning a good return, but also tangibly improving the world in that building. It's awesome. And I like helping people do so. You don't want to think of fundraising or fundraising for capital raising as asking people for money. You're offering them an opportunity to invest in something that aligns with their values. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's really very similar. So tapping into the deeper meanings behind the event of the money transacting. Yeah, you can get a good return anywhere. You can invest in Bitcoin. You can do all kinds of different things that are kind of morally agnostic or they're not cool and tangible. Whereas I think with real estate and with syndication, especially you're offering people to be an owner of something real. You get to show them through your investor updates, newsletters, what have you, what their money is helping build and achieve.
I think that's really special. And it's something that investors that I work with enjoy. They enjoy getting the updates and the little personal stories of the tenants and that sort of thing. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. One of the hardest tasks to balance while scaling your real estate investing business is accounting. Well, realestateaccounting.co takes care of the numbers for you so you can grow your business and revenue. REA helps property managers and investors save time and money by automating back office, financial, admin, and accounting. Starting is quick and seamless from accounts payable to reconciliations, taxes, and reporting. Go to realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever to find out how REA clients save on average 30% by leveraging their accounting services versus hiring in-house. With CPAs on staff and being owner-operators themselves, REA knows the challenges of your growing real estate business. Try it risk-free at realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever. And remember to mention the Best Ever podcast sent you to receive up to $1,800 towards onboarding and services. That's realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever. If you're not sure where to start investing or need help taking the next step, mentorship and coaching is one of the best ways to get going. Think Multifamily is a leading apartment acquisition and education company who provides true one-on-one coaching to help you invest for your family's future. Their servant leadership approach will guide you to successfully scale your real estate business or assist you to diversify your investments in multifamily. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how they help working professionals just like you transform their future through partnering and community. In fact, the majority of real estate investors who partner with Think Multifamily get involved in a general partnership within six months. Thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching highlights the partnerships, joint ventures, and resources all available through the coaching program. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how to become a member and get involved. I'm going to have a contrarian thought process just for the sake of our conversation. I think it will make our conversation even more interesting for the listeners. So when you were talking about value-add investors, you make the building better when you add value. So as passive investors who are investing in private placements that buy value-add deals, you were saying that's a warm and fuzzy feeling. You didn't say that exactly, but that's what I believe you're implying where you're actually doing good, right? You're doing good stuff. I am. Not everyone is. <laughs> right, right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, yeah, so, you can. You have that opportunity. So let's talk about you then. So that way I won't generalize it. So with your deals, and again, I do the same business you do. So I'm just thinking about it from a different perspective, just for our conversation. There's tenants out who have low rents. Boom. How do you explain that? Yeah. How does increasing the value of the property, which you need to increase the rent, how does that give the warm and fuzzies to a passive investor when they're essentially displacing people who can't afford to live at the place that you're buying once you implement your business plan? That's a great question. The basic answer is I don't displace everyone that can't pay. With every building, there's almost always someone that gets grandfathered in where maybe we could earn a little more profit if we did bring them up to market and kick them out. But it's just not something that's going to let me sleep at night. And I think they're often heartwarming stories for investors that can actually generate goodwill that may lead to more capital, more ability to do things. And you never know. So I don't always want to transition people right to market right away. And for those that can pay, if you're not a retiree and a fixed income, if you're a couple both with incomes or those kind of things, 
I like to explain it in very clear terms and make a plan that takes place either immediately or over the course of maybe even two years that works for both sides. So I might say your rent's 800 now, the market rate, if you look at Craigslist and these comps is 1200. Could we get you up to 950 this year and then maybe 1125 next year? Something like that, that's a gradual step up increase. It's not, hey, you owe me $400 extra next month kind of thing. It often works for people and then you avoid a transition. And if they leave and stop paying, you're losing 1200 a month time that it takes you to transition. Plus you might have to put five or 10 grand into that to get it up to a better value. So often if you can keep a tenant and get them on a plan that gets them to 90 or 95% of market, something where they're not incentivized to move, but you can capture most of that value without really having to modify the unit, that can be a win-win. Let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about the different type of commercial real estate that you own. That certainly piqued my interest when you were talking about you've got mixed use restaurants and retail. Can you just high level, what do you own right now? Sure. About two thirds of my units are multifamily residential. We have two single family houses and that's how I started. And then I have a lot of small office units and some large office. And we have a sort of downtown main street building that has two restaurants and three retail stores in it. So a pretty wide range of different asset classes. I have basically everything except industrial. Not all of it was by design, especially in this climate. I wouldn't buy restaurants, but the building and the location and all the other numbers were so compelling Mm -hmm. that it made sense. And the restaurants were poised to survive COVID very well. They're not asset classes in which I'm yet, I would say, even an expert. It excites me to learn about them. And I had enough experience and track record to legitimately venture into new territory. So they come with pros and cons. Multifamily is much easier. It's more turnkey. It's more obvious, but there's a lot more competition for it. You know, there's probably 10 times more people trying to buy multifamily than are trying to buy office, for example. And you can often get a better dollar rate per square foot in office than you can in residential. So if you what the market rents are and how to make a building appealing and how to manage it well, there's a lot more upside managerially. Whereas a multifamily, it takes a pretty bad manager to get your rents to be half or 40% of market. Whereas an office, that happens all the time. You often see office rents at 40, 50% of market and the owner has never studied it, doesn't care. They just, yep, it's 500 bucks or it's 300 bucks for the small office. And they don't really think about doing a lot of research and study into it. So there's more ability to create value through just changing management, I think, in these other asset classes sometimes than there is in multifamily. Oh, that's fascinating. I definitely see how that could be the case. I never thought about that, how multifamily, you've got to be living in a cocoon if your rents are 50% of what they should be. But with office, you've just got one or two tenants and someone just might not be paying attention to those one or two units. And that provides some tremendous upside opportunity. Plus there's less competition going after that. Totally. We bought a mixed use building. This was my first syndication and it was only $820,000 the purchase. It just appraised for 1.2 million. And that was almost entirely because the seller who stayed on as a tenant didn't want to pay market rent for his unit and valued using the right numbers because he wanted an artificially low $1,000 rent for a beautiful law office that would rent for 4000 wow. in a market setting. So things like that are very hard to find 
residential where there's just much better market information out there and people study it more. So it has been intriguing to find value. And I tell people the way I find these buildings is often the MLS. They languish there because the numbers look awful. But when you go there, you dig into them. And if you know the market, you realize, oh, the numbers are awful because they're half of market. And someone didn't realize that. (laughs) I have a good friend in Cincinnati, Ash Patel, and he buys office. He swears by buying small commercial properties. That's his thing. Mm. And he does the same thing. He looks on the MLS and he finds properties where the numbers look horrible. And usually what he told me is it's because the property is listed by a residential real estate agent and not a commercial broker because the residential real estate agent just happens to have a friendship with this person who owns one office building. So they just list it, but they don't necessarily know the mechanics for how commercial real estate's valued and what it's really worth. Have you, have you come across that? Every single office building I've bought has been with a residential broker or directly from the owner an off-market deal. But yeah, absolutely. Commercial brokers know what they're doing in commercial. And if they try to sell a single family home, they might misprice it just like a residential broker might misprice a commercial property. But it's much harder to really accurately value commercial because you're using the income model. Comps really doesn't apply. So not many residential brokers can use the income model to accurately price a building. They'll kind of try to use comps and be like, oh, this building's about 4,000 square feet. So we'll charge whatever the kind of going rate might be for that, not realizing that that's not how you value it. And it's actually worth 50% more than the price you put on it. So both sides can be very happy in all these transactions. I think both sides have felt like they got the price they wanted. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a big step towards the overall buying a property, identifying the commercial real estate opportunity, through this method is a big step in the success of the overall project. That's what I was getting at. However, identifying the opportunity and then actually executing on it properly is a very important other step in terms of having the project be successful. So once you identify, there's a lot of value in this property. They don't see that necessarily, or they're choosing not to take advantage of it. And I'm going to maximize value by buying this property. But then you've got to find a tenant or multiple tenants to fill the building. So how do you go about finding those tenants? Yeah, that's a great question. In several instances, a purchase that I've made has been dependent on me negotiating a lease with an anchor tenant. So I write offers to basically market spaces during the contract period. And so oftentimes I'll be able to lock in my profit and know that this will be a good investment before earnest money even goes hard because I've talked with an anchor tenant and signed a new seven or 10 year lease with them that will become valid on the day of closing. So Mm -hmm. that can be one way to mitigate your risk and vice versa. If an anchor tenant says, no way we're leaving, probably not to buy that building because you're buying an empty building that's much harder to fill. Mm -hmm. Commercial vacancies can take six months to fill whereas residential shouldn't be more than six days or weeks at most. And then the other ways to market are pretty similar to residential. It's a little harder because the many apartments.com kind of sites don't really work for offices, nor does Facebook for that matter. So if Zuckerberg's listening, he should fix that. (laughs) But Craigslist is still one of the best ways or LoopNet or, or other similar sites. We've got the New England property, commercial property exchange is a good one for us, Maine. So different ways like that. And just networking, the bigger the space, the more it becomes about personal relationships. Who 
are the restaurateurs that we should contact to try to fill this restaurant vacancy and that kind of thing. Okay. You said it could take up to six months. Are you able to build that into your contract that I have the option to close on this property for up to six months? That seems like a tough sell. No, I have not tried to do that. I've been able to negotiate leases within about a month because they're with existing tenants. It's not me putting it out on the market and trying to find someone new. Okay. Um, it's often these tenants that have been under market negotiating a market lease so they can stay in their space. They're often happy to have the security. Many times they've been month to month for years and now they get a five-year or 10-year lease at a known price every year. That can be great for them, but it's also great for me because I've locked in many, many years of income. Whereas mm -hmm. with residential, if you can keep a tenant 18 months, you're doing pretty well yeah. you know, on average. So there's less turnover in commercial, which is nice. Have you purchased a building that has been vacant and, or at least had some vacancies and then had to fill them post-closing? Yes, this is a great story. And this is my best investment. I don't want to steal from the lightning round here. But, <laughs> no, just let's talk um... about it. Yeah, let's, let's talk, let's, <laughs> that way we have some time to hear the whole thing. Exactly. So this was a building that had been on the MLS for four years. It was a big class A office building, 18,000 square feet that was occupied by a law firm. And all the founding partners had retired and they wanted to get out of being in the real estate business and sell. And the current firm want to become a landlord and they were only using the second floor, 46% of the space. I was brought in by the broker as a consultant almost because she knew I did a lot of commercial to get fresh eyes on it and help her market it. And I came away after an hour thinking to myself, I'll buy this. If the law firm was willing to stay and pay a market rent, I think it works just based on that. And sure enough, I met with them, negotiated with them, and was able to have a long-term lease signed with them prior. So the closing was on March 3rd of mm -hmm. this year. So COVID was just starting to become mm -hmm. a real big problem. And I partnered with a broker to list the bottom floor, thinking it'd be great for a medical practice. It's 9,000 square feet. And we just got crickets for months. You yeah. know, no one's renting big 9,000 square foot commercial spaces in April, March, May of 2020. So by the end of May, I was like, you know, we got a much more familiarity with small office and there's tons of private offices in this floor. I'm just going to take this listing back and just start putting these on Craigslist and seeing if I can rent them for 500 a pop, because that would actually translate to about the same rent I would get from a whole floor, triple net, long-term mm -hmm. tenant. And it would actually have a lot more diversity. Yeah, But I was pretty nervous because we only had one tenant who was paying all of the mortgage and costs, et cetera, luckily. But if they went bankrupt or something, you'd be in real trouble. So this is yeah. not a beginner level <laughs> investment mm -hmm. necessarily, but very what, quickly- what's the, what's the mortgage every month? We negotiated a year of interest only. So it's been in the 2000s every month okay. Um, okay. and we're earning 12,000. So it's been a huge delta. <laughs> um, Those numbers but work. It'll soon go up to 5,000 or so this mm -hmm. coming March, but we're still in a good position. We're paying some significant taxes and utility bills as well. Right. But we've been able to fill all but one of the offices in the downstairs. And we're now actually building more in some of these open format, open workspaces that really just, A, they don't really work for COVID but that's ending the vaccine, I think will bail us out within the next six to 12 months. But even so, private offices are just more valuable than open space. So it, I think it's a good plan no matter what, and they're easier to rent out. So it's now multi-unit building. It's got a lot more tenant diversity. The turnovers don't hurt as much as when your 9,000 square foot tenant turns over and you're vacant for six months. Now it's just filling 
office by office, room by room almost. Some of them have mm-hmm. taken more than one office, but it's been a great investment. And we bought it for 1.1 million and we hope to refinance in the two and a half to three range next year. Wow. Bravo on that and just getting resourceful and making it happen. So the flip side to renting it piece by piece at the bottom is obviously management. You have more management and more leases to keep track of. So can you tell us about that process? There's a great video if you Google herding cats and (laughs) that's what management can be. But the nice thing is that commercial tenants, especially in a class A building like this, are not as high maintenance as a lot of residential tenants. So they take pride in their places. They want them to look professional. They're not going to be hanging the laundry out the window kind of stuff. So they're a pleasure to work with, quite honestly. And that's kind of one of my rules of thumb is I always want to rent to people that I enjoy interacting with if I possibly can in the commercial space. Life's too short to be you know, dealing with unhappy people. So it's a little more work. There's certainly more management intensivity when you have a lot of small tenants versus one big tenant. But that was a risk I was happy to make because yeah. I had investors on this ride that was not going well for the mm-hmm. first couple months. Right. Fair enough. It makes financial sense. So you make it happen on the administrative side in whatever way you need to make happen. You said you negotiated interest only for a year. Was that with the bank or is this some sort of seller financing deal? That was with the bank. And I've learned over time, I used to not really pay much attention to my financing. I always did it with the same local community bank. And my most recent deal, a $3.3 million mixed use building, I think we shopped it to over 12 banks. And that was a huge learning process. And in that one, we got two years of interest only. So those are things that can really goose your returns that are not sort of taught in the single family or possible in the single family realm that I kind of love about commercial and larger multifamily applies here too, but you can negotiate these sort of things. The financing for this office building we did with a credit union. It might've been on your podcast actually, but I had heard an interview where someone mentioned that credit unions are not allowed to charge prepayment penalty. Mm -hmm. And I had just been frustrated by some prepayment penalties and trying to refinance with another deal. So I was like, ooh, that sounds good to me. So we ended up getting a pretty good market interest rate and no prepayment penalties because we knew the plan and here was to refinance pretty early. And that was going to provide the capital return to investors in the first year or two was the hope. If you did hear that on my podcast, then I don't remember it, but I'm glad that you heard it regardless, because that's new information to me too. Credit unions are not allowed to charge prepayment penalties. That's interesting. I appreciate you educating me on that or refreshing my memory on something I learned about maybe three, four years ago on a podcast in the archives. I love talking about your deals because I really enjoy learning about commercial real estate and the different nuances and some different asset classes that aren't typical. So that's why I personally kind of steered our conversation towards the commercial real estate office and retail front. So thank you for humoring me. And I'm sure that a lot of best ever listeners got a lot of value from this too. Before we wrap up, we got to do a lightning round. And I obviously want to know what your best ever advice is. So Based off your experience, taking a step back, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Be true to yourself, follow your passion, and give it your best shot. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's bring it on. All right. First, quick word from our best ever partners. Mark your calendars for the best ever conference, February 24th through 26th, back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, 
you are put into a mini mastermind group of eight to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at BEC2022.com. That's BEC2022.com. Best ever book you've recently read. Investment Biker by Bill Rogers is a great combination of adventure where in the late 80s, he motorcycles with his girlfriend all across the world through the Soviet Union, through Africa. But he was an investor, an original partner of George Soros, Stanley Druckenmiller, and was looking at each country with a kind of macroeconomic investing eye. And I think a lot of it applies to real estate. Really fun read. Best every way you like to give back to the community. I serve on two nonprofit boards right now, Healthy Homeworks and Passive House Maine. So I'm giving my time back in that regard. I try to share what I know on podcasts, encourage other people. always want to be giving with my time. And then I give money to different nonprofits I support as a recurring donor. So it's just kind of set it and forget it or a big lump sum, whatever it may be. But those are three ways. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? They should give me a call on my personal cell phone, 207-517-5700, or they can hit up my website, which is www.holmanhomes.com. Dave, thanks so much for being on the show, talking about your experience in commercial real estate and getting into the details of some transactions. Enjoyed that and hope you have the best ever day. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot, Joe. Have a great day.